Grayover contestant from last night. I think he's cheating. He? Uh, what? What? In getting on the show? Cheating on the show. Cheating at the actual, the actual game. You can't cheat the show. We filmed Quiz, the TV drama, in 2019. And the behind-the-scenes team has reunited for this podcast. But because of what's going on in the world, what you'll hear was recorded individually by us all in the socially distant safety of our own homes. In our drama, Matthew McFadden is playing Major Charles Ingram. Sean Clifford plays his wife, Diana Ingram. And Michael Sheen is transformed into host, Chris Tarrant. Welcome to Final Answer. Yeah, I think, I, I think it's Paris I'm going to play. Hang on, Dad. Wait, where are we? (laughs) (laughs) No, Paris. Paris, final answer. Final answer. Final answer. Thought it was Berlin. Berlin, Berlin, Berlin. In this episode, we'll take a close look at how we made episode two of Quiz and exactly how we recreated that infamous night in 2001 when Major Charles Ingram got all the way to the million pound question. So I'm uh, Dan Winch and one of the exec producers on Quiz. Hi, I'm Alice Pierce. I'm the producer on Quiz. And I'm James and I'm the writer of Quiz. Change your mind to Paris. That's brought you five. What Chris said and how he said it the rhythm of everything he said at that point at which he builds to the questions and then and then does everything in between um, is so familiar to everyone, isn't it? You know, is that your final answer? The pause, you know, the long pause that Chris actually himself said that he wished he could, um, he could perhaps have patented his long pause because he's aware that that's something that a lot of uh, um, quiz show hosts use now, um, which didn't at that point in time. It's now become that the infamous sort of X factor pause before you hear the results, uh, the winner, <laughs> isn't it? And actually, I think you're right. It, Chris Tarrant was the first to do that, and his performance was so built into the DNA of that show and the drama of that show and the tension, which is what makes it just so utterly watchable and so yeah, tantalising as you watch it. It's brilliant. I have to admit, when I was write- when I started writing the script, I assumed that once we got to the gameplay element of it, that it would be really easy to write the equivalent of cut and paste because it already exists so you just have to um, I mean I, I probably even thought of saying oh just go watch YouTube and then come back and I'll carry on the story from here but of course what you realise when you're both writing it performing it and producing it is the audience is kind of building towards this moment where they're going to get to see what feels very familiar but with these actors recreating it and actually when you are adapting any real life story into drama the first question you're going to ask yourself is why what, what, what purpose fictionalizing this how will it add to or uh, expand upon what we already know so you couldn't just recreate frame by frame the recording that maybe people had seen in the documentary uh, in the in the weeks after the trial or have seen on youtube you have to explode it you have to see something else you have to get three-dimensional into what's currently two-dimensional you have to go around it and behind it and through it what? yeah that major from last night is nearly up to 32 grand, amazingly. Say one. He's like a new man today. So it created all these opportunities for us, really. We get to see the backstage world, the crew, all gossiping as soon as suspicion uh, emerges. You get to see these, these angles from different points of view, from Diana's point of view, from Tequin's point of view. You get to feel the rumble of suspicion go down the line of fastest fingers first. So, so all those things. But I think the most important thing was also, of course, was to turn it into an, really a, an exciting thriller. We, Stephen and I 
when I was at his house in the final weeks working on the script and he was pushing me, pushing me, pushing me. We kept referencing people like Hitchcock uh, and other classic heist movies about how you would get the drip, drip, drip of fear and doubt and intrigue sort of going all the way through this. Uh, but he changed his mind knowing that he would lose £15,000 if he gave the wrong answer. He went with Craig David, who he'd never heard of. <laughs> Well, it was it was an interesting balance actually between a sort of what what I had done in preparation for the actors um, ahead of getting into the studio is I created these iPads that had all of the all of Charles's performance on the show um, and we kind of broken it down question by question so that Michael and Matthew and Sean could sort of uh, access that footage um, ahead of filming and just kind of refresh their memories but actually. It, I think we realised as we sort of moved through that studio time that it was more important to just honour James's script and to free ourselves of, you know, the exact detail. Because, you know, of course, as James says, this is a drama. You know, it's not a documentary. It's an interpretation. And I think that freedom that we allowed ourselves to move around the truth and the fact of it and, you know, the the tape that you can watch on YouTube was really crucial. Um, So that was a really interesting kind of discovery. I think one of the things we felt was worth embracing or definitely worth embracing for the atmosphere sake and what we were totally trying to achieve with um, with recreating the show was to run the show as the show when we were in the studio to run Who Wants to Be a Millionaire as a, as a piece of entertainment, uh, you know, footage rather than shooting it as a drama. So all credit to Alice, you know, it was hours and hours of planning um, I know Alice touched on this before, but the the cueing, the lighting cues, the sound cues, all of that atmosphere that that is so characteristic and um, so identifiable with um, who wants to be millionaire, the game show, had to be absolutely precision planned so that it created um, this seamless environment when we stepped into the studio and that it ran in a very um, succinct period of of schedule time. It could easily have. Um, we could have easily doubled our, our shooting schedule time in that studio and we'd have filled it, I think it's fair to say. But um, well done to your planning there, Alice. All credit Sometimes to you. I, I still wake up in the <laughs> middle of the night and I shout, music Q17. <laughs> <laughs> Terrify my partner. <laughs> no, but it was, um, I think... I think Michael and Matthew in particular really responded to that, didn't they, Dan? The fact that we had tried to really recreate the game show so that it felt incredibly real for them. Um, and, I, and I think that really informed their performances. Totally agree. and Because I, I think actually in what one of the main things in question with Charles is how he handles himself, how he, how he copes with his nerves when he's sat in that hot seat. And, and I, you know, I sat in that hot seat a couple of times by God, it was it was actually baking hot in that sheet, and it was like sitting in an oven. But really, um, really intimidating sitting there, you know, with the lighting, and you you look at the proximity to the seats, the fastest finger first seats. You know, you look at the true distances that would have been the you know there on the on the game show itself when this actual show happened. Yeah, it makes you realise whether there was cheating going on or not, or however it was happening. It must have been an incredibly exhilarating environment to be sat literally like a rabbit in headlights um, for anybody. Uh, I, I'm afraid I'm going to have to, I think I'm going to have to abuse my final lifeline 50-50. 
Uh, computer, take away two wrong answers. Leave Charles with the right answer and one remaining wrong answer. <laughs> not any easier. Um, uh... One thing I found really interesting as well, whilst working on this, um, working on the scripts with James, was realizing how little of Charles's performance I had actually seen. Because of course we've only seen those notorious questions. You know, the Craig David question, the the Baron Houseman question, the Google question, where you hear the contentious coughs. But there's and correct me if I'm wrong, I think there's a period of about 18 minutes, is that yes. right, James, in his performance yes. that where there wasn't a contentious cough. And so all of that material is incredibly unfamiliar to us. Um, but we were able to include one question, um, which is the, the question about the Holbein painting, The Ambassadors. So, yeah, yeah, Holbein, Holbein. Final answer. Final answer. OK, uh... First of all, you thought it was Rembrandt. You said you'd seen the painting. You then thought it was Holbein. You just won. One hundred. And I'm so thrilled that that features in Quiz because um, I think it's really lovely, you know, to, to to be reminded of the fact that we actually haven't seen the whole of his performance in that hot seat. You know, we've seen moments that were selected for us by the producers. That was that was a really fun detail yeah, to include. Yeah. Uh, and actually, further to, to that and the script, I remember now when when writing it, and we I had to commit, in fact, to to scripting it like it was fiction. Like Alice said, I had to go through every single look and glance and sweat down the back of the neck and Major Charles's nervous hand twitching and every glance that Diana gave to Tequin or up to the screen. You just had to, um, you had to, you had to script it like it was a, a military plan. Because I, I, do, I couldn't think of any other way to sort of tell the story, to tell the reader, the actors reading it at their home before they came on set, what the story was, other than a man just answering questions, because obviously something else is going on here, and a lot of it is non-verbal, a lot of it is just visual, so we had to include that in the script. And actually, interestingly, of course, all the way through the script, all the, three, the entire three episodes, one of the main propositions at the heart of this drama is that the possibly the Ingrams didn't do it, at least in the way that they are accused of doing this crime. We could find no other way to write the script um, that wasn't the guilty version, because there's no other, there's no other, really there's no other thing to script. I I feel a bit guilty saying that, because it's not really in the spirit of the drama, but actually we made a decision that if this was going to be exciting to watch, the contract with the audience is what you're watching is somebody commit a crime. So in a way, what we're watching in episode two is in that first half is the guilty version of events. It's the prosecution. Um, because, again, we, I didn't know how else to write it, except that Tequin coughs at this moment, and that, it, that raises suspicions. Then, interestingly, when we got to the edit, we actually rode back a lot on that, and I was really surprised, and that was largely driven by Stephen. So in the script, I'd written a lot, Charles listens out for the cough, and it doesn't come, so Diana has to intervene on the Craig David question and cough here. Stephen sort of rebelled against that in the edit, to all of our surprise, he started including less and less and less uh, coughs uh, from Tequin, up to and including the point when I walked into the edit one day and there were no visuals of Tequin coughing at all. And I was dead against that. I was totally defiant. I was like, what are the audience watching if we don't see at least one version of Charles asking a question and then you cut to Tequin coughing? 
And Stephen was absolutely committed to the idea that there is no, if you do that, if the grammar of the show is deciding to cut to Tequin at this point, the show is saying that they're definitely guilty and the tension completely explodes. And I think he's right. And that's the version that people will have seen in episode two. We never actually ever show the actor Michael Gibb Gibson as Tequin coughing uh, after Charles lists the answers. Uh, do you know, I'm going to rethink it because I, I, don't, I don't think it's Athens. And I'm pretty sure it's not Rome. And I would have thought, I would have thought it was um, Berlin, but there's a chance it could be Paris. <coughs> it's imagined by the audience that it's definitely Tequin doing it, but we never actually show it. And that was not what was scripted. That's a choice that we made in the edit because we realised we were doing... We were, do, we, were, we, were, we were falling victim ourselves entirely to the guilty narrative. It's been really hard. So you find yourself sort of it, often in like farcical moments when you're on set and you're with uh, Stephen Frears, the director, and Alice and Dan are there, and you're with Michael playing Tequin at, at his fastest finger first seat. And you're saying to him, well, obviously you have to cough, um, but can the cough be uh, sort of 45% innocent, 55% guilty? And the actor... <laughs> The actor does a, a sort of guilty yeah. cough and go, oh, that sounded really, that sounded really innocent. Can you, I mean, can you, uh, and you, you, you sort of become a fly on the wall looking at yourself going, what are we doing here? This, making, making films is weird. Um, but I, I forget actually, I, I, Alice, do you remember, I, I think at some point, did, did Matthew have to make a choice in that chair, whether or not he was doing it, whether he was not doing it? I can't remember. I don't think Matthew ever did. I think Sean, Sean definitely would, would come on set every day and tell us about whether she thought they were innocent or guilty. And she definitely oscillated between the two. And I know that that informed her performance at points. But I think Matthew kept his cards very close to his chest um, and didn't want to let us know. I, I think also Stephen encouraged him sometimes to do a take where definitely in his mind Charles was guilty and then also to do takes where in his mind he wasn't um, and there was one brilliant exchange between them where Matthew asked if Stephen could tell which he was going for and, and, and Stephen didn't so Matthew really I think he really found the fun in playing with that idea yeah so he was he was very cool about that and didn't quite reveal to us exactly what was going on inside his head as Charles. Hello my name is Suzanne Cave and I was the costume designer on Quiz. Well, I suppose the most iconic item of clothing was the, the polo shirt that Charles wears for the show. And we did get that made, essentially, because it's such an iconic thing that you have to get that right. That was the first thing we did. I mean, it wasn't necessarily the most difficult challenge, I would say. But I think overall it was, as with these, you know, when you're representing real characters, you want to you wanna get it right, you know, and, and it's that balance of authenticity, but also telling a story. So... You have to be careful not to tip over into caricature. So that's relevant with costume as well. You have to sometimes rein it in. Even though if you try something on that someone actually did wear, if it looks like it's dominating too much, it's it's like a bit of a barrier then to the character, I think, rather than helping. So you have to always find that balance. But then what really topped it off then was when he had his teeth fitted. <laughs> so the teeth on the polo shirt was there, a beautiful symphony. <laughs> <laughs> I I think I'm going to have to. Um, oh dear, yeah, I'm going to have to phone a friend. It's all right, that's what the uh, yeah. lifelines are there for. Uh, okay, who are we going to call, Major? Uh, Gerald. Okay. I mean, it was interesting because even like people involved in the project, when they actually saw the costumes taking shape, they were like, "Oh my god!" Like, did we really wear that stuff? You know, it was. And it, it seems quite recent, but actually, I suppose it's twenty years ago, and 
fashion does change <laughs> quite quickly. So yeah, it was it was getting the the kind of cut of everything right, the shape, the silhouette, the the kind of high-waisted jeans and the fit of, say, suits, for example, like a lot of the ITV characters would be all suited and booted and it was that kind of loose fitting, which people tend to think is a bit grim these days. But having said that, in when we were sourcing the costumes, like we used costume houses and makers and then also we did manage to find stuff on the high street as well that the, the 90s had come back, the vengeance. <laughs> know how to say that without being disrespectful to the period but if you just kind of make things a little bit ugly (laughs) you know like you know that the way things are worn or you know the tuck in you know like literally sweaters tucked into jeans which Shan was all over and she loved that and it was really great for her character as well and that's again come back in the the French tuck which is tucked in at the front and out of the back so it was it was kind of details like that you know just um and the square toed shoe on on men which is you know, a particular thing. <laughs> so in the hot seat, we have uh, Diana Ingram. Well, with, with Chris Tarrant, I suppose, I think pretty much all of his looks were to do with the actual shows that we were recreating. So we kind of had to stick pretty closely to that. So it was sourcing the right fabrics, getting the kind of that sheen, <laughs> that sheeny quality to the, to the cloth. And we got his shirts made as well. And then match the ties and so I mean we weren't slavishly copying it but you had to approximate it to a certain point it was really great fun to do I have to say you know and it was a period that I hadn't done before so I was well into it look something isn't right he's normal people don't play like this well essentially what I realized I I realized I didn't know that much about their story and and what I did know was pretty one-sided and it was quite interesting to essentially see both sides. And I thought that was where the show really worked in terms of the tone of it, that it, it was a balance of, you know, one minute you're going, oh, they totally did it. And then another minute it's like, oh, actually, I'm not sure now. So I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't have an opinion of whether they did or not. There's a brilliant resource called Millionaire Wiki, where that we used an awful lot actually throughout production and, and even when we were in development. And it has, you can see the transcript and it, you can see all the questions that every contestant was ever asked and what answers they gave. So we use that a lot for Charles's performance to see every single question. You know, there's an Anthony Eden question. So that was a brilliant resource for us to be able to get a sense of, to familiarise ourselves with the um, aspects of Charles's performance um, outside of the notorious, famous questions such as the Craig David question and the Google question and the Houseman question. I can't remember, James, if the entire run is on YouTube. Uh, Yes, I think it is. I think um, there are various you know, fans or, or people who are interested in the show who've edited together clips of just Charles. Uh, and then, of course, there are occasionally you can find the Martin Bashir documentary, which is, I hope, ITV brings back at some point, because it, it, in and of itself, it's really, it's really fascinating to see how, once they were found guilty, how the show constructed the narrative. I think often when you talk back about a show that you've made and it's all finished and you're really happy with it, you can think back and slightly romanticise how easy the production was and how everything came together so well and how everyone just got on so brilliantly. But I, I, I'm remembering now those two full weeks that we spent on the set of the game show that actually we didn't get it right straight away, did we? It took a while. It took a long time, actually, building up the narrative of their possible guilt. 
And actually, I, I, it's a way, it's a process that I've never experienced before as a writer in terms of how you layer on layer on layer on layer. Normally on a film day, you, you go onto the location, you do those takes, you maybe make some adjustments and you can give some notes and try different things. But then, of course, you move on the next day to a different scene. We, this was a, a privilege, actually, because we had, we had the set for two weeks. And what we found was the schedule had to be very flexible, much to Alice's intense um, possible stress, is that we, we had to keep going back and forth and back and forth and going back over things that we'd already done because we, we would watch the footage that night of that moment and just wonder whether or not we'd actually captured it or captured enough of, of the psychological story that's going on in Charles's head, of the, of the heist if it's happening between Charles and Tequin and Diana, that triangle. And I've never before ever... Uh, spoken to the editor during the shoot but Pierre and I would sometimes speak and Pierre would speak to Stephen and Stephen would speak to me that evening or that morning and Pierre would drive a lot of that conversation she would sometimes say I don't think I have it yet I think I'm 60% there on this moment for example the moment when Diana in the guilty version is deciding whether or not to cough on the Craig David question because Tequin isn't coughing because he doesn't know the answer and you you know you film that moment and then you have the editor of you know one of our one of our greatest film editors saying to you i don't know yet whether i have all the constituent parts of that story to put it together so you, so we went back didn't we alice and dan we would go back and back and back and back and you it requires often um uh patience from actors and and good communication to the actors about why why they're having to do the thing again because they think they've done it and they've moved on in their head to a different scene so we've never, I've never worked that way before. I've never worked where you get people back in the same costume and you have to look back at the footage and put their hair in the same place because we're building different angles, different elements, different parts of this, this story. I think that's right. And I think actually one of the things that that's testament to as well is the fact that if we were to look at that Rachel DaCosta footage from um, you know, the, the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire game show, they got it so right in terms of how they got in the heads of those contestants and how they made a very dramatic um, game show because your instant um, sort of default position when you're wanting to create dramatic tension from a drama angle and a drama point of view with our cameras was to go to those exact angles that, that they'd gone to Google final answer final answer catch me when I fall they're going to break please don't go to Please don't go for a break. We're taking a break. Oh, God! <laughs> My favourite moment, and I was, I was strangely worried this, this was always going to get cut, I don't know why, but I, it, was, it was something I always really liked and Stephen never really mentioned, and I thought, oh, God, doesn't he like it? It's the moment when, you know, the famous, that other famous part of millionaire game show folk, uh, you know, cliches, which is, uh, we, we're going to take a break. Uh, the millionaire question when um, Charles has answered the Google question and Tarrant cuts to a break. And I, I, had, I don't know why, this wasn't actually in the stage play, but it was only in writing the television script. I was sat at home and I thought, oh my God, of course, that means we get to, that means we get to sit with them if we want. I always assumed, probably, that we, ITV, would go to a break at that point and then come back to the television drama. But I thought, wouldn't it be really exciting to actually just sit with Charles and Tarrant in that moment when they're just waiting for the ad break to finish? But of course, brilliantly, excitingly, one person knows whether or not he's won and one person doesn't and what would they say I just remember thinking oh god what would you say is Tarrant to the contestant because they know that he knows and he knows that you know that he knows that you know you alright uh, yeah I just um, I mean no not really <laughs> <laughs> 
so you can see, can you, if I've got the answer right on your screen? I can. I'm sure it'll just be a few seconds. What's, what's happening in that moment? And then, of course, you've got the second part of that story, <laughs> which is, as was true by that point, uh, a lot of people in the production, in the, t- the crew of Who Want to Be a Millionaire, at that point thought he was cheating and running around panicking about whether or not they should continue the show uh, and this whole side narrative we have about the glitter man and there's a glitter man there which is all completely true uh, there was a glitter man who hadn't readied the glitter because no one thought Charles was going to get to the million pound question based on his first night performance so you have all those elements as well but it's, um, it's a moment I'm glad has stayed in Are you okay? Just awful Yeah Puts it all in perspective, doesn't it? I haven't even told the chaps about our win yet. It seems a bit... Actually, uh, there was a message for you from Celador when I got back from school. I don't know if you... I think most people would be very, very surprised that the, just the idea that this took place the night before September 11th. It's certainly not something I knew. I don't think it was really mentioned in the, the weeks and months and years um, and the telling of this story, probably because people understandably, weren't connecting the two. And obviously, there's a great deal of sensitivity you have to take when including that, that awful event. We, we talked a lot about what was the correct way to include it. Um, I, I don't feel like you can ignore it because their trial in episode three, when we get to it, was taking place against the backdrop of the invasion of um, Iraq. So we just decided to go with it. We decided to include it. And then, and, and, you know, then you're making choices, creative choices in the edit about how much to include, what footage to include, what the tone of it should be. Absolutely. I think we we felt that it was a very surreal, um, but of course, true and authentic detail to this story. Um, so, you know, we and, and as James says, you know, there's a cultural context. Um, the number of times I've heard people say, oh, my goodness, of course, this was this was the day after. And we did small things like um, you'll notice there's a date card caption that comes up on the night of Charles's first performance which was on September 9th so we thought you know 01 and we thought some people might pick that up so it might sort of ready people um, for that detail as well there were lots of creative decisions um, and one of them was you know what archive to use and it's actually very hard no news outlets for you know obvious reasons like to share um, their news footage and their reporting of um, such tragic events like 9-11 so we used archive that had been uh, sort of shot by people who you know by sort of um, I think it was a group of people who were filming from Queens or across the river and sort of handheld footage um, was the only archive that we were able to get hold of well life goes on eh yeah I love you. I love you. Give me that number. What really struck me as well was that, in particular, for Diana and her experience in the studio, because she's in the guest seat, which is positioned directly sort of behind the contestants, so she can't see Charles's face. And she's got a cameraman, a dedicated cameraman, who would position himself sort of in the aisle and constantly be filming her. You know, so having a camera so close to you over the period of 45 minutes to an hour in a hot studio, you know, I would be so aware if I did anything, if I, if yeah. I coughed or if I tucked my hair behind my ears. You know, I think it, it's definitely true. I think being in that studio and recreating it in the way that we did really did, I think, create in all of us this sense of like awareness of, of just how intense that experience is of being 
on a game show under the lights in front of a camera. Also, you know, Alice and Dan are being very modest here uh, in underselling quite what an achievement it was to recreate and rebuild the original Who Wants to Be a Millionaire set from scratch. And as a writer, I worked very closely with, with Alice and, and her team on writing the script, where you're essentially at your desk on your own, making arbitrary choices, feeling often very humiliated, in, inadequate, but making choices. And then the joy of making a TV drama is suddenly you gather people around you whose job it is to then recreate that vision. And so it's very easy for me to type in the script, interior, the who wants to be a millionaire, soundstage, Elstree, <laughs> night, and then just click send. No, yeah, you're welcome. And then click send. And then it's, you know, it is hundreds of people's job then to, um, to bring that to life. And I can't tell you the absolute joy for me that first day, um, having watched this game show since I was, um, you know, 18 years old. And having lived in this world for three, four years quite intently, uh, thinking about this story, one, I think, Monday afternoon, walking into this, this studio space in South Wimbledon in London, and to see that original set replicated and rebuilt as a playground for us to walk around and walk through and play in, I just properly gasped. There was huge shivers up my spine. But I turned up late, so everyone had already got used to it and they were just like really annoyed <laughs> that something was happening and something wasn't going very well. And I just wanted to skip around and celebrate. I just couldn't believe we'd, we'd rebuilt it in the exact footprint, in the exact shape, in the exact style of 1998. Um, I hope it's another small, quiet joy for them to see that replicated with such attention to detail and such love. I'm Stephen Campbell and I, and I was the production designer on Quiz. It means um, I'm responsible for all the um, how the show looks, uh, including cars, animals, you know, graphics, construction, uh, the general overall look of the film. What Stephen did so brilliantly for us um, on Quiz was to help us distinguish, visually distinguish, the worlds of the different people whose stories we were depicting. So between ITV and Celador and the Ingrams, and then this rather unique and familiar world of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? The Game Show, which um, Stephen lived for several weeks trying to work out how to build that set. <laughs> it was quite a challenge. We knew we wanted to recreate the, the absolute best sort of I identical set to the original Who Wants to Be a Millionaire set, didn't we, Stephen? That was, that was sort of the primary goal. And then, of course, you're doing it within a budget that we've given Stephen, within a time frame, <laughs> within yeah. a time frame that we're all aware we're we're trying to work towards and hit, and and all of it within a drama. So it's not like we were solely making a game show with this huge big set. Yeah, it was quite a challenge, wasn't it? Trying to think about who best could construct the design <laughs> if yeah. we weren't going to borrow a set from somewhere. Yeah, I mean. If I'm honest, I mean, we were quite desperate in a sense. <laughs> um, I, think, I think the time frame was okay. Um, it was mostly the budget uh, challenges and the fact that at that particular time, the, the whole film TV industry was absolutely jam-packed and I could not find anybody at all to build it. Quotes we were getting in from... Uh, actual light entertainment construction companies were three or four times over what we had in the budget, which we just couldn't afford. And it only had to, it only had to you know stay up for two weeks. But at the same time, it had to look it had to look right, um, and that was an issue because you know 
even in a script that says 19 million people tuned in to Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, you know, they all know what it looks like. Um, the whole world knows what it looks like. You couldn't change it, <laughs> so, but we couldn't afford it. So it was a big, big issue that, yeah. As we all know, um, millionaires sold, you know, around the world and every country, well, not every country, but a lot of countries had their own um, set. And it just so happened that the Hungarian one was available between seasons and yeah, it was an option, but um, I just thought it was too problematic. Like all these things, that it wasn't free. <laughs> and then I think they wanted the Hungarian construction crew to come over and build it. They wouldn't let us build it. <laughs> and um, which, which would have meant, you know, putting them up, paying them per diems, you know, their lunches, their evening meals. And the, yeah, just it just wasn't going to be any cheaper, I don't think. And who gets to sit in the chair next? It's Charles Ingram! It had to be recognisable. It couldn't, you know, we had to maintain the suspension of disbelief. If it was wrong, no, everyone would just go, this is rubbish. <laughs> so, as Dan said, we'd have to, some brave decisions had to be made. Um, what could you actually cut from that set that people wouldn't really notice? And it was a difficult, it was very, very difficult. And, um, yeah, it was, um, the pressure was immense. But I did come up with the idea after watching lots and lots of footage. Oddly, the majority of the shots were between Chris Tarrant and the contestant, with only the audience in the background. And even when Chris Tarrant comes in from his entrance, you don't really see the floor. You see it in the wide, but when you see it in the wide, it's a perspex floor. I then realised that most of the lights from above bounced off this very shiny glass surface. And really, I thought to myself, we could get away with not creating that extremely expensive bowl that is in existence in, you know, in the 1998 set. One thing I remember being quite a vivid surprise to us all was the fact that going to Grey's Inroad, the ITV base, HQ, for the first time, I think we were all pretty surprised, weren't we, about the fact that that still feels or looks like, well, exactly what it was like then. And it's really stood the test of time. We could only film there for one day. And the exterior, you know, it's just as modernist looking, or modern looking, sorry, or contemporary looking, I should say. It's 2019. How do we make that building look not contemporary? And what we did was, in the first um, day, was we, we got two, two cars, I think, two cars of the period, 1997, and as we, as we panned down the exterior building, these two cars just drove past. And suddenly, because of those cars, the building looked like it was older than it was. It was, it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't take much. <coughs> hello, Paul Smith. Paul, hello. Uh, it's Charles Ingram here. I was just on your show. Charles, thank you for calling back. Um, so, I have to tell you that we have suspicions. Some days, <laughs> you know, some scenes you think, oh, they're definitely guilty. And then other scenes you think, no, it's ridiculous. They're definitely not guilty. And I know that's a wishy-washy answer, but it's true. It's true. That's what makes it so enjoyable. Well, uh, it's not often I get to say this, but for one million pounds. The number one, followed by 100 zeros, is known by what name? Google. 
Megatron, Gigabit, Nanomole. This ma- this makes me feel I- I'm I'm going to be brave and I'm and I'm going to admit that I still didn't know what a Google was. Is that terribly shameful and embarrassing? No, I'm an Id- I'm an idiot as well. I d- I don't think I would have known. I think I definitely had to check it when I was writing it, I, even though I knew that was what he what he answered. Is that just because of Google, the the search engine? That's I think why. It's why, isn't it? I still don't know whether people would know. <laughs> the that. thing that I'm... we did worry about though was the million pounds. Was the wasn't it? Because I think. At the end of that opening, uh, one of the early scenes in episode one, where uh, Claudia Rosencrantz is pitching hard to her new boss, David Liddermann, you know, he says, all right, well, you know, he's looking for event TV. What's so special about this? They're going to give away one million pounds. And I think that was something that we all felt actually in, you know, 2018, 2019, when we were working on this. Oof, how do we really make that have an impact, you know, and how do we really contextualise that so that people appreciate that this was, you know, the late 90s and that is an enormous amount of money um, and an unprecedented amount of money certainly to be given away on a game show. Charles. You've just won. One man. Final Answer is produced by Sony Pictures Television and Sony Music's Fourth Floor Creative. Final Answer.